You're listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio. Every Wednesday night at midnight. Good evening, you're listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio. I'm Joe Raleigh. This evening, I'm talking to Tim Young, who is an astrophysicist and passionate science communicator from Western Australia. Tim, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking this evening about astronomy, the stars and the cosmos, and also possibly how an understanding of astronomy can affect the way that we understand ourselves. So, Tim, I just wanted to begin by asking you about where your own interest in astronomy and and astrophysics came from and how it's developed over time. So as far back as I can even remember, um, I've been fascinated with space. And I think that that's not an unusual thing for people. Uh, My experience is that most people you speak to have at some point in their lives, especially earlier on in their lives when they're they're quite young, um, are fascinated with space. Culturally, we've been fascinated with uh, space and the heavens for as long as there is a recorded history of any form. Um, it's quite often the first science that we see in any early culture as well. So there's something about the skies that obviously draws us as humans. But for me, my personal journey was to uh, take that on as a career. So I went to university, uh, studied astrophysics, and ended up as a researcher, as a, a radio astronomer. So rather than looking at the the pretty Hubble pictures that everyone is more uh, familiar with, my career took me down the path of using giant radio telescopes like the one in Parks, uh, the one in Hobart, to unlock the co- uh, secrets of the cosmos on a different wavelength. Mm. Is that work you're still involved in now? Uh, I have taken a different path in recent years to focus more heavily on science communication. Okay. And part of the reason for that is that um, over time, one thing I've, I've noticed is that people have a very, very poor understanding of what it is that uh, the, the role that science plays in general in our lives. Yeah. And uh, especially you know, without getting too deep, um, you can see already the political discourse uh, around science is not one of respect. Uh, there's not a lot of respect for what scientists do and, and the the output of, of scientists in, in multiple fields, not just astronomy, but, um, you know, whether it be uh, public and health sciences, uh, climate sciences, or any of those kinds of things. So I, I really got passionate about trying to make sure that people understood what science is, how it works, and, and why it's important to their everyday lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's... Um you know, important in and of itself, but there are sort of so many ways that it's useful from a kind of economic perspective, if that's what's important to you. So do, are there any particular kind of areas of deficit in people's knowledge when it comes to astronomy that, that you are aware of? I mean, there is, but none of them... So astronomy is kind of weird because the direct application of astronomy does not affect most of our lives. Um, you know, what's, and that includes my life, what's happening out in the cosmos does not directly affect me. It, fun, it fundamentally and physically can't. It's just too far away. But yeah. it's what happens as a result of our understanding that affects us. So um, the, the line that you'll often hear trotted out by people like myself is that um, astrophysics and especially radio astronomy 
is responsible for Wi-Fi. Um, Wi-Fi is technically a CSIRO invention. It's an Australian invention. And the fact that we have wireless communications uh, in the modern era is a direct result from a radio astronomy. So it's it's what you get out of the discipline rather than yes. the direct applications of the discipline. Sure. So that's one side of it. The other side is that uh, we tend to lend a lot of credence to um, superstition as well. In our daily lives, I mean, horoscopes are obviously still a thing. Um, they are fairly harmless. They aren't going to do anything bad if you want to uh, take horoscopes on board in your life and, and use them. But at the same time, they don't come from a place of scientific inquiry. They don't play, come from a place of, of scientific rigor. So having people understand the difference between what is science and what is not is, is very important if we're going to navigate um, our lives. Yeah. Absolutely. And as you referred to before, I think I agree with you that there is an innate interest in looking up at the night sky and an interest in, in space in general, which a lot of, you know, most people have when they're young and they don't necessarily keep up um, as they as they get older. But I think we can all agree that, you know, it is it is wonderful and, and awe inspiring to look up at a, a clear night sky and just just to kind of bask in, in that that amazing sight um but you know i don't think many people have much of an appreciation for for what's actually going on up there beyond just the fact that it looks nice um so i, I wondered if you could give me and some of our listeners a bit of a hand in uh having a slightly more informed perspective on on what we're seeing when we look at the night sky so that that's a very difficult question because it it matters very much whereabouts you are in the world and it matters very much uh, when it is as well. So the night sky is both constant and also constantly changing. It's a bit of a paradox. Okay. The um, in fact, we we use the night sky in the most fundamental ways as a clock or as a calendar, um, more precisely. Yeah. In fact, if you think about it, the very very first science um, in recorded history was done right here in Australia. You know, sixty thousand years ago, uh, the First Nation peoples of Australia have been using astronomy to tell uh, the time and tell the time of year, and to understand uh, seasons and to understand um, the way that that we need to live within. Uh, the continent of Australia. Okay, um, that's been something that has has been happening for for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. So, it's a uh, it's something that is is constant to us, but it, it changes depending on the time of year and whereabouts you are. Yeah. Uh, I live in Perth, for example, um, which is yeah, three and a half thousand kilometers away from uh, where you are over on the east coast. Yeah. So our night skies um, are going to look a little bit different. Yes. Now we're on the same latitude roughly mm -hmm. um so that means that our night sky is going to look fairly the same at the same times of year it'll just be at different times as you go north and south as you change your longitude that's when things start to change more drastically that's why the northern hemisphere has a very different night sky to the southern hemisphere so different times of the year you'll see different constellations um we're in the middle of the year now the winter months so if you uh, are lucky enough to be one uh, on a nice dark sky and two, not a cloudy sky, uh, you'll see constellations like Scorpius. Uh, Scorpius, one of the zodiac constellations, is probably the easiest constellation to spot in the night sky next to the Southern Cross. The Southern Cross is by far the easiest. And if you're down in Australia, you're very lucky in that you get to see the Southern Cross at all times throughout the year. It's the one constant that's up there. Yeah. It's the smallest constellation. It's the brightest constellation. It's the easiest to find. 
Okay. Um, Scorpius is made up of very, very bright stars as well. So at this time of the year, very, very easy to spot. And uh, around Scorpius, you have a lot of other really interesting deep sky objects as well. So it's I, I find winter... Um, paradoxically one of the most interesting times to do astronomy even though it's one of the hardest times to do astronomy because of the weather um when you're heading towards the summer months then you have a different set of constellations again and that's when you're getting more of your um your orion and uh canis major and those those constellations as well so it'll depend on where you are and when you are the easiest way to find out is just to look it up so if you have a, a mobile phone there are an a ridiculous number of apps that you can get your hold, a hold of that will tell you what's up in the sky at any given time. It's very, very easy to navigate. All you need to do is, is look for some of the, the bigger, brighter stars and you'll be able to line them up pretty quickly. So that's one way of doing it. The other way is there is a lot of computer software that you can download as well that does a very similar thing, but at a, a much higher resolution and a much um, higher level of, of uh, accuracy. Yeah. Okay. So when we're looking at constellations, we're obviously looking at stars, but stars aren't the only things that are visible out in space. There are planets as well. Um, and these things are all at you know different relative distances from the Earth. So when you're looking at constellations and you're looking at these stars, does that mean that they're, they must be at a, a sort of fixed position out in space away from us? I mean, is it, are there visible stars that we can see all just at a certain distance away from us? Or is it also to do with the relative brightness of that star versus how far away that star is from us? It's a bit of both. It's much more of the second, though. So the stars that we see are, yeah, you're right, a combination of brightnesses and distances. The brighter it is, uh, the farther away it can be before it it becomes very difficult to see. Okay. Um, The stars that we see in our night sky are relatively close. So they are the ones that are... um, you know, sort of within, uh, <laughs> I'm going to throw some numbers out and I can guarantee you they're going to be wrong. That's just the nature of astronomy. <laughs> That's why we have big <laughs> books with lists of them. Yeah. Um, but from, from memory, you're looking in, in, the, in the tens of thousands of light years uh, distance. So a light year is the way we measure distances in space. Um, it sounds like a, a measurement of time, but it's a measurement of distance. A light year is the distance that light travels in one year. And the reason we use that is that light travels at a very constant speed. Um, in fact, the speed of light is, is one of those fundamental constants of the universe. Nothing can travel faster than it. It's always one speed. Yeah. So the distance that travels in one year is a very fixed uh, amount of distance. As if you try and measure things in kilometers, you end up using so many billions and trillions that it's it's too hard to keep track of. Yeah. Well, and already, you know, ten thousand light years is is a very big distance. If you start yeah, it's a, trying to go, it's it's, a, it's it's a lot for a for the for a close star for a, for a relatively close star. Exactly. The yeah. closest star is Alpha Centaurus. Alpha Centaurus or Alpha Centauri um, is. Uh, a mere uh, four light years away. So uh, I want to say about 120 trillion kilometers. I think okay. that's about right. <laughs> it's pretty much just around the corner, basically. Not, not too it far. is. <laughs> but it does mean it's, it's one of those things that you have to remind yourself. And even I have to remind myself is that every time you're looking up at the night sky, you're not looking at what's happening now. You're looking at what's happened in the past. Because right. the, those light years, the light has taken that amount of time to reach you. So Alpha Centauri, four and a half light years away, four and a half years. So you're looking at a four and a half year old snapshot of what happened at that star at that time. That's amazing. Um, you're never going to see what's happening right now. And now, so if you want to see things that are further... Oh, sorry, I cut you off. Oh, no, so I was just going to say, so, so all of those different spots of light, they're actually different ages. They're, they're showing you something of a different age. Yeah. That's cool. Absolutely. 
And that's one of the, the most important parts of, of my research um, and research of, of most astronomers is that we're not just looking at what's out there. We're looking back in time to see how things were a long time ago. So once you're looking at the far, farthest reaches of the cosmos, now you're looking at, at things that happened just after the Big Bang, just after the... the um, you know, the formation of, of the universe and the galaxies that we see now. Oh, okay. So the further out you look, the further back in time you're also looking, which is really, really important. Okay. So how far can we look? How, or have we been able to look up until this point? So the furthest back you can look is uh, 13.8 billion years. That is the age of the known universe or the visible universe. Wow. Um which is a very, very long time. You know, it's, it's one of those, um, those numbers that it's, you, the human brain just wasn't built to understand. We don't work in billions. We barely work in threes and fours. Um, <laughs> but the age of the sun as a comparison is only about four billion years. Okay. So that's the kind of, you know, the kind of rough time scales that we're working on. Yeah. And, and what is it that we're actually observing when we look back that far? So when we are looking back at those primordial stars and primordial galaxies, the ones that, that came into being just after the Big Bang itself, um, these are ancient stars that burned hot, fast, and died quickly. Um, so uh, the, the further back we're looking, the, the more we're looking at stars that are made by just pure hydrogen. They were very big. They burned quick and fast, exploded as, as massive supernovas, um, and in doing so, started to enrich the universe with heavier and heavier elements. So the stuff that we're made up of, mostly carbon, yeah. um, that didn't exist for billions of years because it took those first stars and the second generation stars and the third generation stars quite some time to build up these higher level elements um, through a process called uh, nuclear synthesis, which is uh, we probably don't have time for today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right, so you've got these various stars at different different distances away uh, from us. Um, this is all sort of we're, we're we're looking up at the sky at night on a clear night. We're, we're seeing these stars different distances away, different levels of brightness. Um, just to put that into to put us into within that kind of cosmic context, um, where do we figure into that big sort of three D map, if you like? This is where it gets really, uh, well, depending on your point of view, it either gets really exciting or really depressing okay. <laughs> because we are so small. Um, if you, if there's a really fun activity, actually, I love to get people to do. So if you are listening at home, this is something that you can do right now. If you hold your uh, arm out at arm's length, doesn't matter which arm, yeah. and you imagine your sternum as being the, um, the formation of, of our earth, essentially. Okay. Um, as you sort of move from your sternum out towards your fingertips, you're moving across in time. Life on our planet started at about the elbow. Okay. So, you know, there was this huge period of time before even basic life started to exist. Yes. The dinosaurs don't even appear until about the knuckles. Right. So okay. legs evolved just before the wrist. Dinosaurs at about the knuckles and humans are right on the tip of the fingertip. If you've got nails uh, and you haven't, chewed them off like I have, um, humans are about the length of a, you know, the average fingernail. Right, so okay. it is this tiny sliver at the edge of, of, of Earth's time. And then, you know, our Earth, the beginning of the universe from our sternum to the other side of our body is, is meters away. 
So we are this tiny, tiny little fraction. And in fact, even all life on Earth is this tiny fraction of, of what has existed yeah. um, in, in the vastness of space. And that's just one planet. When you start to look outwards, our solar system is made up of eight planets. It's actually probably made up of nine. We don't know what that ninth planet is. We know it's not Pluto, which is going to enrage a lot of people just by saying it. But unfortunately, it's the truth. Um, <laughs> There is a ninth planet out there. We can feel its gravitational effects. We just can't see it yet. It's uh, The hunt is on to find it right now. Wow. So how how is that nine... possible? It's just because there's so much <laughs> space out there to, to, to look. It's just very difficult yeah. to find. Okay. Yeah, and it's so far away and, and it's dark. You know, planets don't typically emit light. Okay. Um, it's one of the key defining features of a planet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's dark. It's far away. We can feel it tug on the other planets. We just can't figure out where it is. We know roughly where it should be. Yeah. We know roughly how big it's going to be. We know roughly how long its orbit should be. We are just we just don't know exactly where to look at the moment. Oh, so, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an exciting discovery to be made yeah. probably in the next five to ten years. Amazing. Okay. And then where does our solar system exist within that kind of geographical context of the actual universe itself? Right, so, you know, nine planets, uh, on average, the planets have some number of moons. We have one, Mars has two, Venus has none. But as you get out towards Jupiter and Saturn, we're talking in the, about 100 moons each. Whoa. So quite a lot of moons out there. And then um, that's, so if you think of our solar system as being a collection of, of, of bodies, that's a, a couple of hundred things yes. of, of importance. Our star... Our sun is one of 400 billion suns in our solar system, in our galaxy alone. So the Milky wow. Way, 400 billion suns. My God. Which means already we're talking about tens of trillions of planets and moons and things. And then the Milky Way galaxy is one of tens of trillions of other galaxies. So again, these numbers get so huge so quickly that it's very, very hard to sort of understand or really appreciate just how tiny and, um, oh and insignificant we are. That's insane. Really, so, so there are so many stars in our galaxy yeah. and, and, and that many galaxies in the universe. Yeah, I mean, you can walk down any beach in Australia and just look down the length of the beach and know that the number of grains of sand that you're looking at does not even begin to come into comparison. That's incredible. So we can see in time when we're when we're looking out into the into the universe. But how can we? Is, is there a limit to how far away we can see in terms of what galaxies we can observe? Is that yeah? Okay. Yeah, there is. And this is this is a fun one as well because, um, like I said, so as you're looking outwards, uh, the further out you look, the further back in time you look. So theoretically, you should only be able to look back 13.8 billion light years. If the age of the universe is 13.8 billion years and we measure light years as the distance that light travels in one year, it makes sense that the oldest light should be 13.8 billion years away, right? Okay. A billion light years away. Sure. But yeah. it's not. Okay. It's actually much further than that. It's closer to 100 billion light years. And the reason for that is that the universe is also expanding at the same time. Right. So universal expansion is incredibly difficult to wrap your mind around. And the reason for that is that it's not things are moving away from each other in space. It's that space itself is stretching. Okay. The physical size of a meter is increasing over time. And it doesn't seem to increase consistently 
over space. In some areas of space, it seems to increase faster than others. Um, wherever there is mass, wherever there is matter, things, okay, space-time seems to expand slower than in places where there is no matter, there are no things. So between galaxies seems to expand faster. Okay. And... That's a real mind boggle to get around. <laughs> and this is and this is where it comes back to the idea that um speed is the only constant thing, whereas mass and uh yes, mass and distance are are, are relative. Is that right? I'm gonna completely yes, hash yeah. that up. Yeah. yeah. And so that and that was, you know, this is the the big discovery that uh that Albert Einstein is, is famous with, um or famous uh, famously credited for coming up with. Um the fact that that matter and 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 time and space are all irrevocably intertwined in a way that sort of dictates how the entire universe works, um, and that gets really cerebral very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. That's amazing. All right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't I can't begin to imagine how how it would be possible to know how many galaxies there are, but um, I'm guessing there are some incredibly clever calculations behind that <laughs> based on the observations that we can make. Um, I don't know. Do you know how, how we've come up with those numbers of galaxies that there are? Well, so we come up with a lot of these numbers uh, by guessing with good intentions. Right, <laughs> so okay. we we take a, a measurement in one area and then we assume that everything is the same in all areas and then just multiply it out okay so that's the easiest way to kind of do it but the other way to, to think about it is that um the universe is technically infinite and this is where it gets even more complicated and, and weird because the universe that i see is technically and fundamentally different to the universe that you see and that's purely because we are separated by about three and a half thousand kilometers so when i look you know let's use the word west for better uh, lack of a better term yeah. if i look west at the moment i see the edge of the universe yeah. at you know roughly let's ballpark it and say a hundred billion light years away but when you look west you also see the universe being um you know roughly 100 light billion years away it's exactly the same distance for both of us and it's it's not um, that three and a half thousand kilometers isn't taken into account because I can see three and a half thousand kilometers further in that direction than you can. And vice versa, if I look east, you can see three and a half thousand kilometers further in that direction than I can. Yes. Because we're limited by the speed of light rather than the distance itself. Okay. If that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is quite mind bending. It is. It's really, really <laughs> mind-bending. Yeah. Because it's really, it's it's not the way that we naturally perceive and talk about how things work on a, on a sort of day-to-day, on-the-ground, person-to-person level. It, it's sort of the opposite of how we actually come to understand things. Um, so it's completely counterintuitive. It, it's it's not intuitive. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's... And that's one of the things that uh, I think it takes a lot of people. Uh, there's a there's an aha moment that I see in students whenever I uh, I have taught at university, where you see in their minds when they kind of get it, and I love it so much because in in astrophysics the aha moment is this moment of of bliss and ecstasy as you kind of go oh my god I've got it, <laughs> and then almost immediately after there's this dawning of realization that. <laughs> 
oh no, <laughs> like, <laughs> everything is so small and weird. And there's yeah. there's this, uh, it's a cognitive dissonance that uh, that students have to sort of get over. I remember getting <laughs> over it myself. There was this period of, of borderline depression where you sort of have to go and understand and, and come to accept that we are who we are in the cosmos. And right. that's fine. We just have to move on from there. Yeah, but somehow you have to try and assimilate that into your day-to-day life and, and sort of get on with like, you know, having to get groceries and-, and I know, how do you buy milk after that? <laughs> it's like, I can see why that would be difficult. It's sort of that whole ignorance is bliss thing from a certain perspective. It is, um, but then then you get past it and you get to the other side and then you you buy the two liters of milk and you look at it and say, wow, milk is, is primarily made up of, of water, but also the calcium, which is you know quite a heavy element, which was forged inside a supernova billions of years ago, a star that existed way before our sun, a star that in fact birthed the elements that formed our sun. So you know the milk that I am drinking is is made of the same stuff that our sun is made of, and that's a really profound thing to me. <laughs> and this is all before you've you've got to work, you know, all before you sort of I haven't got finished to your check out yet. <laughs> Ah, that's amazing. Um, Okay, so so we, you know, it sounds like we do have quite an impressive level of understanding of what is out there in the cosmos. But but you've already referred to one particular mystery that this ninth planet in our solar system. Are there any other cosmic mysteries that particularly appeal to you? There are so many. I mean, there's a near infinite number because... And that's the the thing. So when you get into, if if you are, for example, uh, looking at a career in astronomy, um, there are so many different fields within astronomy as well. There's theoretical astronomy, there's observational astronomy, there's instrumental astronomy, there's all these different types of astronomy. And one of the things that I love the most is um, observational astronomy because you're not necessarily, you, 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 you might take a telescope or, or some specific instrument and look out into the cosmos hoping to find a very specific something. Yeah. But what you end up finding is a hundred more questions than you asked. Okay. Because you might find the thing or you might find you might not find the thing. And in doing so, you've also found other things that you didn't even know to ask in the first place. Right. Um so as an example, I my research was uh, primarily built around um, observing pulsars. So a pulsar is is when a very large star uh, reaches the end of its life and collapses in on itself. Uh, it explodes as a supernova, and then if it's large enough, it will form a black hole. Okay. So a very very super large star will form, collapse, form a black hole. If it's just smaller than that, it forms something called a pulsar. So rather than a black hole that is this cosmic mystery this unknowable thing that you can't peer inside a pulsar is a very very dense ball of mass uh we think that is mostly pure neutronium so just neutrons so all matter is made up of of protons and neutrons Mm. and and electrons uh we think that uh the the gravitational pull of these these pulsars these neutron stars is so intense that it smashed all the electrons and protons together to just to form just neutrons the the densest form of matter that we know oh my god and it's sort of it's compounded in so tightly that it uh you know one one cubic centimeter of it would weigh more than than the melbourne cbd so it's a, an incredibly incredibly dense uh, matter okay. and these neutron stars can be about 10 kilometers across 20 kilometers across something in that sort of scale okay 
and they spin very fast. Sometimes about a, uh, one uh, revolution per second, sometimes millions of revolutions per second. Okay. So they spin quite, quite fast. But more importantly than spinning fast, they spin very accurately. So okay. that one second revolution is exactly the same length of time every time it spins. Okay. In fact, they're so accurate, you can use them as, a, as clocks. You can use them uh, as a more accurate clock than some of the atomic clocks we have down here on the Earth. Wow. Um, so, a, a pulsar you know, we have clock. These, a pulsar clock, yeah, exactly. So these, these cosmic timepieces that we, we observe... We go out looking at them and seeing, oh, well, how do they work? What is the, what's the, the stuff that they're emitting, these bright um, beams of, of radio waves and, and other things as well? And the more you look at them, the more you realize that there is complexity to those emissions that you couldn't see originally. And then you look deeper into that, and there's even more complexity to those smaller bits of complexity. And then that you see patterns within that. And these weren't even questions that you knew to ask in the first place. All we were asking in the first place was how accurately do they spin and what, what is coming out of them. Yeah. So the more you look, the more you start to find. And quite often when you're looking for these things, you might also find other things that you weren't looking for. Maybe it's not even a pulsar at all. Maybe we found a quasar or some sort of active, active uh, galactic nuclei. So there is, astronomy is so fascinating in that you will always find a hundred more things than you wanted to find, which asks more and more questions uh, in the future. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, can you think of any mysteries that um, if... I don't know if it's if it's even correct to phrase it in this way, but are there any sort of mysteries or unanswered questions that you think to solve would um, have some kind of profound effect on on us uh, in some way? You know, just just kind of cracking that key or, or solving that particular problem will will have some kind of uh, you know powerful impact on on humanity. So the the biggest one will be the discovery of life. If we discovered life of any kind outside of our own planet, that would be the biggest one because yeah. it would mean that conclusively, you know, we are no longer alone in the universe. As far as we know, we have not found life anywhere else. And anyone who likes to sort of uh, engage theories that we have encountered life outside of the Earth, all I can say is if you have sp ever spoken to an astronomer, they can't keep their mouths shut. There's no way that a conspiracy could continue with astronomers existing. They're just a chatty bunch of people. <laughs> so um, we, we haven't found life outside of the Earth, but if we did, that would be huge. That would be monumental. Yeah. We have several missions that are looking for life right now. Um, one of them, or most of them are, are on the planet Mars. Um, obviously, uh, the Curiosity rover, the, um, the MER, or the Mars Exploration rovers, um, the InSight mission to Mars recently as well. So all of these these probes that we've sent out to Mars, one of their key things is searching for uh, traces of organic matter of some kind. We don't really care what kind, just any evidence that life even once existed on Mars. If we could prove that, that's huge. Yeah, yeah. The other big one that's just been announced is a new mission to uh, one of Jupiter's, uh, sorry, one of Saturn's moons, Titan. Um, this Titan, Titan is a fantastic place. It's one of my, my favorite places in the solar system. Yeah. Um, Titan is the only place in our solar system other than the earth where it rains. So it doesn't rain on Mars, even though we have seen evidence that water once existed on Mars, it doesn't currently rain on Mars. It does currently rain on the moon Titan, but it doesn't rain water. Titan is very, very cold. In fact, so cold that hydrocarbons like methane and ethane exist as a liquid. So the um, you know the or butane gas that we uh, we use in stoves, 
Yeah. That exists as a liquid on the surface of Titan. And it rains these hydrocarbons as well. So there are giant oceans and lakes. There's a full hydrological cycle of these liquid hydrocarbons. Um, One of the great things about that is that, again, all life that we know is is made of hydrocarbons. So if we could find uh, a place that's full of hydrocarbons, like Titan, uh, if we could send a probe down there, which we have in the past, uh, a very short-lived probe called the Huygens probe, which was part of the Huygens-Cassini mission. Yeah. Uh, if we could send a more advanced one down there to sort of test the atmosphere to see what kinds of molecules are there, that may actually give us um, some really interesting insights into uh, the kinds of conditions that life might need to survive. There's also another mission to one of Jupiter's moons, uh, Europa. Uh, This would be a submersible mission, so NASA's first uh, submarine. And that's because this moon has a giant subterranean ocean of warm, salty water. In fact, more water exists on this moon than all of the oceans of the Earth. It's this uh, this fascinating, fascinating place of uh, a cold icy surface and this warm, uh, warm, salty ocean underneath it. So all of these places are are very interesting places that we would love to be able to explore. Yeah, yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, we're talking about life existing in the cosmos. Obviously, there is life on our our planet and, and, you know, we are part of the universe. So does your interest in um, astronomy ever, uh, ever lead you to being sort of more directly interested in in biology and and the life sciences and and things like that. Absolutely. And in fact, this is not something that's unique to astronomy either. I think that if you're a a successful scientist, um, and I don't mean successful in terms of, you know, have you made a lot of money or or been promoted very high, but if if you're doing your job well, it means that you don't just do your discipline. Yeah, you want to learn about all the disciplines because every every fac- uh, facet of science has something to offer. Um, you're right. So when I when I was doing my research, uh, I ended up researching earthquakes uh, for a short period because we were wondering if if the mechanisms on the earth that give us earthquakes were the same mechanisms that give us these variations in pulsar emissions so you know then you have to sort of look at geology and stress and strain models and all these interesting things yeah um yeah if you're looking for life you absolutely need to understand biology you need to understand how biology works how does life what what are the definitions for life and how does uh life differentiate itself from other um self-replicating processes because there are non-biological self-replicating processes as well um you know catalytic processes uh, work like that yeah so yeah you you do have to keep a very open mind in science you have to to sort of be willing to learn somebody else's uh discipline yeah but more importantly and this is something that i find uh, something that's very close to my heart is you have to be very open to collaboration Yes. Science is not a one-person game. You need to be working with as many people as possible and, and collaborating openly and helping each other and saying, this is where my expertise ends and yours starts. Yeah. And I don't have the answer, and I'm hoping that together you and I can get an answer. Yeah. Um, I feel that quite a lot of the time science can get very political and science can get very uh, corporatized. It can become very, very capitalistic in that sense where secrets are guarded very closely. Um, But what I would like to see is a a world where we we share science in an open and free fashion where it's it's something that we all uh, own as a people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that can only be a good thing just to share the knowledge in, in a much freer way. Um, talk, thinking again about, uh, you know, life existing on our planet. Um, I don't know if you've given this particular sort of uh, 
topic much thought but um you know i i think a lot about consciousness and the, and the existence of this phenomenon of consciousness and um you know in terms of mysteries existing in the universe uh I, I know consciousness is often seen as a philosophical issue, but there's been a lot more of a scientific, um, biological interest in consciousness in the last few decades. But yeah, in terms of this thing that exists within reality, there doesn't seem to be any kind of explanation for what it is and how it how it you know could even be described within physical scientific theories. So is that something you you think about much? It is. And it's, it, you're right, it is very, very difficult. Um, the more that you delve into the realm of consciousness and sort of the gaps between uh, what our current understandings are, you start to head into realms of philosophy where the line between philosophy and science gets very blurry very quickly. Yeah. Um, consciousness is a tough one. I actually read a, a fantastic paper recently. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I was it was a very interesting read um, that suggested that uh, consciousness was a byproduct of the universe itself, that the universe exists in such a way that consciousness um, is a, a fundamental quality of the universe and, and is a result of, of sort of quantum... Um, the way quantum mechanics works. Like I said, I don't necessarily think it's it's correct, but it's yeah. a very fun thought experiment. Yeah. Um, and would make a fantastic science fiction. Yeah. But yeah, so you know, when you when you look at, at what we are made up of, it's it's very unimpressive. It's a whole lot of carbon, um, just sort of mashed together in, in a an unorganized fashion. Um there is, you know, at a macro scale, these lumps of wobbly meat that just seem to uh, pulsate with arbitrary electrical currents um, in, a, in a fashion that no one can really understand. And the result of that is, you know, is poetry and music. So um, yeah. where, where, does that, where does that come from? Um, yeah. And, 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 and experiences, you know, the, the experience of color and, and sound, like, like you say, and, and uh, you know, emotions and feelings. It, it, it just seems completely bizarre. It is. It is very, very bizarre. And I think that's one of the things that, um, that I love about the universe is that it, it does give rise to these weird and wonderful things. Um, and however people choose to incorporate that into their lives, so long as it's in a, in a healthy fashion, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned uh, science fiction and, and um, I suppose you were suggesting there that science fiction is, is a good avenue or, or medium to explore these ideas which might not necessarily be um, concrete and valid, but it's, um, it, it can act as a kind of living thought experiment. And obviously, you know, a lot of science fiction takes place or relates to things happening in space. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just wondered if you could talk a bit about your feelings about science fiction and, you know, how that relates to astronomy and, and what we get out of talking about space through science fiction. So I, I personally love science fiction. Um, and I, this is a, a fun way to sort of divide. If you have a conference with a lot of astronomers in it, an easy way to divide the room is to just ask them, you know, who likes, uh, for example, Interstellar, because you'll split the room in half very quickly. Um, <laughs> half the astronomers will say, oh, it was amazing. They The way they visualized the black hole was perfect and it was just so cool to see. And, and then the other half are like, it was ridiculous. This was impossible. This bit's impossible. This bit was dumb. This bit was, you know, so, 
there's a <laughs> obviously a very critical eye that gets passed over a lot of science fiction. But I'm very, very firmly in the camp of, um, you know, sus- enough suspension of disbelief to make something fun, so long as it's not going to be too much effort on my behalf. I'm, I'm totally on board. Yeah. Um, so I like a, a movie like Interstellar. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. There's some yeah. glaring and ridiculous scientific inaccuracies in it. <laughs> That's fine. You just have to move past it and yeah. uh, understand that it was the story benefited as a result. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I agree. The, I loved that film. I, I was completely speechless by the end of it. My mind was just blown. It was amazing. Oh, it was very well put together. Very, very yeah. well. Oh, um, so good. In terms of the the general sort of realm of science fiction, um, it's a fantastic avenue for us to explore things that we can't normally get a hold of. So one of the reasons why space is so often used in science fiction is because it's not tangible. You know, we 99.99% of the population haven't been to space. Only a handful of people have, or a couple of hundred. Yeah. Um, so, and even those people have only been you know, into low Earth orbit. They've only been three... The, so the International Space Station, where most of our astronauts go, is only 350 to 400 kilometers above the Earth's surface. Right. You know, the atmosphere only ends at about 100 kilometers, um, or more or less, depending on which school of thought you belong to. Um, yeah. So the International Space Station... Um, the International Space Station is, is technically affected by drag. The atmosphere extends, you know, it's very diffuse out there but it extends far out enough that it, it provides a drag force to the ISS um, and which is one of the reasons why we have to boost it its altitude every now and then to to get it back up a little bit higher so it doesn't come crashing down into the atmosphere proper yeah so you know very very few of us have been to space and that means that space is a place where we can we can do almost anything because no one can argue with you you know, yes. space is a place where you can explore the weird and wonderful uh, parts of our own society and culture, um, and people will just accept it because you're out in space. You've already <laughs> had to take such a huge uh, leap of faith, such a huge uh, suspension of disbelief, that you can now accept almost anything. Yes. So most science fiction, and, and especially space science fiction, is less of a discourse on science and more of a discourse on culture. It's a way for us to in, introspect um, within ourselves and to understand how we live as as people and our ethics and morals. Right. Um, so you look at a lot of the, the really popular science fiction out there, like um, Sunshine, uh, fantastic movie, yeah. deeply, deeply depressing movie, but fantastic because it really delves deep within ourselves yeah. based on this concept of having to go and reignite the sun. Scientifically yeah. ridiculous, absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but that's not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is for introspection, for understanding ourselves better. Yeah. And and I suppose it it just allows you to unashamedly ask these big philosophical, deep existential questions about absolutely you know about yourself, what it means to exist, having a purpose in in life, and yeah, and 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 our own fates as well. Um, I suppose it, yeah, like you say, it kind of provides a blank, unknown slate to address those issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what, do, you, do you have any particular... So you mentioned Interstellar and, and Sunshine, but love both of those films myself. Do you, do you have any other particular favourites? Uh, so, I mean, so many. <laughs> Just so many. Um, I, I'm a huge fan. Actually, one of my favourites is, is uh, the series The Expanse. Um, so that's a, oh, yeah. 
a very what we call a hard science fiction. It really relies on um, on some pretty heavy science. So it's probably even more than Interstellar. It's probably the most scientifically accurate uh, science fiction I've ever come across. Okay, um, which I think is a is a pretty big. Uh, an impressive statement to make on on that piece of, of media. Um, yeah. And it's one of those shows where it doesn't explain the science either. It's just there. So it's not, it's not overdoing itself. It's not saying, hey, quick look at this science. Things just happen. And if you understand the science of why that's happening, it's a really cool thing for you. But for everyone else, it's just a part of the story. So it works on multiple levels. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's been so successful. Nice. Um, so the expanse is fantastic. A uh, huge fan of Firefly. Um, as you know, I'm definitely not the uh, not the only one there. It's a hugely yeah, yeah. popular, um, short-lived was... franchise. Yeah. But Firefly was again, you know, it's it's set in space, but it's actually very very low-fi. It's very low-level science. Um, it's really looking at uh, what it means to be uh, a person living on the fringe of society and and how. Um, how we treat the 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 poorest in society, how we treat those who are worst off, um, which I think is one of the reasons why it resonates so well because it hits that really interesting point where people go, "Hey, things aren't fair, and and we shouldn't treat people uh, quite so poorly." Um, mm. So yeah, huge huge fan of Firefly. Um, Amazing. And I mean, like I said, I, I could go on. One of the the greatest. Um, science fiction stories i think uh space science fiction stories isn't a, a tv or movie series at all it's it's a video game the mass effect series told in an incredible story um you know people often dismiss video games as being um very lowbrow but this was a game that had again a lot of really interesting and fascinating science just thrown in there just for the hell of it but it made the story so much richer as a result and again told very interesting stories about who we are as a people and and how we treat people yeah amazing i'll have to check that out i haven't actually played that yeah, sounds fascinating. And unfortunately, we're sort of coming towards the end of the show. Um, but just before we do finish, just wanted to refer back to to something we did touch on earlier, which was how having a, a knowledge of astronomy, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of greater knowledge than than most people, um, how that impacts on your day-to-day life and, and um, perhaps on, on the decisions you make or how you interpret things that are going on, you know, as you said, initially there might be a period of depression when you have that aha moment, and then hopefully you'll move past that. Um, and it sounded like <laughs> it, it can be a positive force in your life. But I'd just be interested to hear, you know, how how much how how often it's on your mind and how it, how what kind of impact it does have on your day to day life. So it's on my mind a lot, um, but I also am fully willing to embrace the fact that I am not a normal person. I'm, I'm not your, your average everyday person. Um, I have some very odd thought processes. Um, but I think that, yeah, being, being in touch with the night sky can be a really uh, wholesome and fantastic thing. It can give you a, a, an incredible feeling of connectedness. Um, you know, like I said, the the night sky that I see and the night sky that you see are fundamentally the same sky, um, even though we're we're separated by thousands of kilometers, and that's true of everyone in the world. It's something that we all share. Um, it's something that we we all look up at with the same sense of wonder and with a sense of equality, because, like I said, none of us have been there. Um, even even the furthest that humans have ever been is the moon, and that's so close. It's it's really really close. Yeah. So. 
all humanity, we're bound to this tiny little blue rock in space. Seeing what else is out there and understanding that it's it belongs equally to all of us, I think, is a really important thing. Yes. Um, I run a, a small not-for-profit um, across Australia called uh, Gorilla Astronomy, where we just take telescopes out onto random uh, public places and just grab people off the street in a, in a polite way and with consent um, and say, <laughs> hey, look through this telescope. Look at the moon. Look at Saturn. Look at the, the moons of Jupiter. You know, there are all these things out there that they're, they're there for everyone. The sky belongs to all of us. And I think that is the most profound thing to me, the fact that there is this one thing that we all share that makes us all equal as people. That's amazing. I think we'll 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 end it there on that that lovely note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tim. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. You can download the podcast by searching for Dialogues on your podcast app. And email us on dialogues3cr at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Just search Dialogues3CR.